Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cult Spark podcast. I am your host, Bob Taylor. I am joined tonight by my usual partner in crime, Stu Smith. We've got another special minicast for you tonight where we are going to talk about Christopher Nolan's new three-hour science fiction epic, Interstellar. Before we get started on that, um, I always forget this. It should really go at the end of the program. I'm going to put it at the beginning tonight so I don't forget. But if you're listening to this podcast, if you like our podcast, please leave a review at iTunes. Either give us some stars or leave a written review. Uh, you can like us on Facebook at Cult Spark. You can like follow us on Twitter at Cult Spark. All your support would be greatly appreciated. Stu and I are going to be doing our best to try to do uh, at least one podcast a month, if not two, from here on out. We're, we're, we're settling into a good schedule here. So if you want to encourage us and you enjoy listening to the show, your support is most appreciated. We offer nothing in return. Nothing. <laughs> Except for brutal, brutal criticism of Christopher Nolan's new movie. That's How many people are going to hate us after yeah, we, this? <laughs> this might not have been the best episode to beg for you know reviews and follows <laughs> and stuff as we're about to... Like our stuff as we crap all over that thing you and, loved and, this weekend. And the thing is, is reviews of Interstellar have been mixed. I mean, there's no doubt they it's have. not a universally loved film. However, from people I associate and talk to on the internet, from friends who have seen it, from people I follow on the Twitters and the Facebooks, it seems to be more liked than not. And I just, I don't know what movie those people watched. You know, I'm envious of those people. Like, I have several friends that, you know, that went and saw it and just found it to be this, uh, you know, rapturous, borderline transcendent experience. And I'm like, I'm, I, I wanted to have that. I wa I walked into this with high hopes because, you know, at the end of the day, I, I still think Chris Nolan is a, a, a good filmmaker. This is a movie I was, I was just dying to see. I mean, I've been wanting to see this ever since Spielberg was attached to it like 10 years ago or something like that. Um, you know, and, and I still think that, that Nolan is a, is a good filmmaker. He's got an interesting vision and an interesting way of approaching material, uh, especially very uh, heady, cerebral material like this. So, I mean, even with all of the mixed reviews, I walked into this wanting, uh, you know, to be blown away, to be transported, uh, to just be in awe in the way that so many people I know saw it. And I just, I, I can't do it. I, I have no idea. Like I get I get why they connected with it. I just don't see it. And this thing is a minefield to talk about because, I mean, you have the Chris Nolan brigade that just loves everything he oh, does God. almost unconditionally. You have – That didn't show up until Batman. Yeah, again. you have the hard science fiction people. Like I was part of the original Nolan defense force. Like <laughs> – like I, I first saw Memento not long after it came out, and I was blown away by that. Yeah, it's there's a lot of people coming into this movie from. I'm not saying coming in preordained to like it, but hey, we all have things that we fanboy out oh, over. Oh, sure, sure. You know, I mean, I'm gonna walk into a Tarantino movie just ready to love that the hell out of that thing. Sure. So my big thing is, I mean, just starting from the basics, it's boring. It's a really boring movie. It's it's nearly three hours long. You feel every minute of it. I'm not opposed to three-hour movies. To this day, I can sit and watch Braveheart, and it feels like it goes by in 100 minutes. But this movie, you feel the time. There's no propulsion. 
There's no. There's not a lot of urgency. Yeah, there's not a lot of urgency. Correct. Like stuff, just, stuff just kind of happens, and I mean, yeah, you you feel bad that that Coop can't get back to his kids, and you know, Murph is turning into just into Jessica Jessica Chastain, but I mean, there's just for for a movie that is ostensibly about saving the human race and how everyone is going to die and, you know, just die on this degrading planet if they don't succeed, you know, that sense of urgency is just almost completely missing because almost all we ever see is like three cornfields. Well, the movie never picks. It's very segmented. Um, and let me go ahead and drop yeah, a spoiler yeah. warning. Now we are going to get into spoilers on this podcast. So if you don't want to know, turn it off now Spend half your day watching the movie if you dare, and then come back. But it, it's it's very segmented. You kind of have the the setup, which is a segment, the the finding NASA stuff, which goes really fast, which which is strange. There's actually parts of this movie that I think are too rushed, which is so strange to say about a three hour movie that bores me. <laughs> but it's paced awkwardly, whereas the the sections of the movie that I feel like should be able to breathe a little bit are not allowed to do that. And sections of the movie that I think should have some urgency and some speed to them drag on forever. The NASA part like bothered me big time because like like I appreciate that they didn't go the expected route of oh here's a training preparation montage where you know Coop leaves his family and gets ready to be an astronaut, but it's literally almost a smash cut from Coop in his in his truck to him taking it's, off in, in the atrocious. rocket. It's one of the biggest it's, things. It's that one of the worst me. transitions I've, I've seen in a long it's, time. You get the scene where he's trying to make peace with his daughter before he goes. And, he, and in case right. someone's listening to this without having seen the movie and they're saying spoilers be damned, I got, I got to hear what Bob and Stu have to say before I decide. Uh, the movie's basically about Matthew McConaughey is a farmer. He's an ex NASA test pilot, hotshot pilot, who's now a farmer because this movie takes place in the future, an undetermined amount of years. Although it felt to me like what fifty or sixty, based on some of the clues yeah, it gives. Forty to sixty, forty to 60 forty to sixty years. the years of the future. Uh, the we obviously kept re- electing Republicans because the environment is fucked. Um, <laughs> dust storms have consumed the globe, or at least the United States. Um, it's wiped out, you know, a good chunk of humanity thanks to starvation. And those who remain are basically farmers trying to keep the human race alive. But because of some weird paranormal-esque activity that happens in Matthew McConaughey's house, he gets led to a nearby NASA facility who is planning a mission. Michael Caine is the scientist in charge there. And they're planning a mission to the furthest reaches of the universe, where actually they're going to send a squad through a nearby wormhole that has opened up to a whole other galaxy where they are hoping they can find a planet that would be hospitable to human life, where we can relocate what remains of the human race. And Matthew McConaughey has to leave his children behind for years, if not decades, to lead this mission to try to save humanity. That's the film. Now, Stu, my question to you is, what was the point I was making before I started breaking down? <laughs> I think I forget at this point. But um, but there's no accepting the call scene. I, I mean, the, the movie makes a big deal of how hard it is for 
Cooper, which is McConaughey's character, to leave his children behind to take on this mission. And we do get a scene where he has to try to make peace with his daughter Murph before he leaves. But other than that, it's like wham. But it takes like five yeah, minutes it's, it's or like something. Wham, you know, bam, this huge life-changing decision. It's like wham, bam, he's in space. No glorious right. lift-off scene. No swelling of any music. No. And we're kind of talking here about almost tropes for these kind of movies, almost things you right. expect to see in these kind of movies. So maybe Nolan's thought is he, he just didn't want to do some of those things because they've popped up too many other times. Well, that, but, and that's kind of, that was part of the point that I was making is that you, you went in there. Oh, okay. He's going to go into space, but he hasn't been a pilot in forever. So they've got to like retrain him or something, but there's, there's no montage set to Hans Zimmer's there's score. Nothing. There's no, yeah, I mean, like, you don't even see him suiting up. It's, it's like Nolan wanted to complete, okay, we're not even going to have anything that even resembles that scene from the right stuff, you know, where they're marching in slow motion toward toward the rocket. And, and, the, and uh, yeah, the thing is, if he wants to not include that stuff because we've seen it too many times before, okay, but then I would argue, you know, Interstellar has the... I call it the spaceship sex scene, which is in every single one of these movies ever where someone's piloting a ship or a drone or a satellite or whatever and has to lock it into the bigger ship or space station or whatever. So you have to, you know, sweats glistening down your forehead and you have to guide the phallic probe into the, you know what I'm talking about, where you've got a dog well, yeah, in the but, hole. Well, and that see, that's scene the thing, like, is the, in the, every the... outer, you know, realistic outer space right. movie ever. And Lord knows we got... 15 minutes of it in this one so it's right. like if you're gonna i mean the other stuff was kind of necessary even though we've seen it before well you know i mean you can have some of those things and you don't have to have the training montage you don't have to have the suiting right. up scene you know just something that that allows things to progress a little bit better than just a literal you know jump cut from driving in a truck to bam spaceship well i mean the reason sometimes you need these things is to Right, to give the movie propulsion. It's it, Scene A leads into scene B and makes that scene mean something. And then that has to go into scene C. And if, if you're doing it right, the dramatic stakes and the excitement accumulates from one scene right. to the next. However, well, if you're a... jumping to him being in space while skipping two or three steps that feel necessary, even if they're obvious steps it then deflates that urgency. It deflates that drama. It deflates that excitement. And I mean, the wind is just sucked out of it at that point where it skips all those steps. Well, and that's, that's one of the film's kind of recurring problems is that, you know, it treats the passage of time like it's nothing. Right. Uh, even though, you know, more than a hundred years passed throughout the, the course of this entire film, you know, there's there's almost no sense of progression. Like again, a hundred, you know, hundred and twenty plus years pass in this movie, but it really only feels like everything's running in real time. Yes. Like within the three hours that we're in this theater, that feels like that's the exact amount of time that has passed within this whole story. And then again, no one's uh, no one's appearance really changes. Uh, right. Everybody yeah. has the same haircut, except for the one, their one mission member who ages a lot 
more than they do, and we can get into that in a minute. But that nobody really ever touches on or comments right, on I, or like asks it, how he's It's so doing. funny because I thought that was one of the things I thought that was interesting. Well, let's set this up. There's a scene in the movie where they go to a planet where because of the physics and the gravity or whatever, the time on the planet that they're on runs a lot. I guess it would be slower, right? It runs a lot slower than it than time would run on Earth. So every hour they spend on this surface of this planet, seven years pass on Earth. So basically, if McConaughey's character spends an hour on this planet, his kids are going to age seven years. So they don't want to be on this planet very long. What happens is, is one of their fellow astronauts stays behind on the ship and some shit happens on the planet. They get stuck there longer than they intend. And when they get back to the ship, which is outside of the gravitational field, their fellow astronaut has aged a bunch of years. His hair is going gray. I did it, it, what would like 20 years to which it was like 24, 27 years. Something and like I that. thought, Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's interesting because now they're going to have to deal with this guy's state of mind and all this lost time. And which never happens. Like, like that's that's <laughs> so many issues in this. That's another one of the big issues. Like, big stuff happens, you know, and nobody ever mentions it again. Like when Wes Bentley's character gets washed away by the right. tidal wave, right. he like he's he's dead. And like, do they even mention it when they get back to the to the endurance? I don't think uh, they do. No, barely. It's when when they return to the ship from the planet with the wacky time and and they see that all these years have passed for their fellow astronaut they're like uh they say uh you know well, are you okay did you did you go into cry or sleep at all and he says something like yeah here and there I took some naps and and that's it they basically pat him on the head and it's never brought he should up have been again. insane after twenty plus years every time I think the movie's about to go somewhere interesting. It doesn't. And I guess it's because – I don't even know that actor's name. It's because he's not Anne Hathaway. It's because he's not Wes right. Bentley. But then again, Anne Hathaway's character, who's who's she's basically the second lead, I mean, is giving nothing to do. I mean, her whole part of the story involves uh, her lover, the you know, her boyfriend, whatever, who was a scientist who's gone – who went through this wormhole prior to them – and she wants to go find him. She's 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 biased about how they go about her mission because she was in love with a scientist who was sent in front of them. But you never meet him. That story line basically goes nowhere. It's it's met. Well, wasn't wasn't that the planet that she ended up on? Yes, at the, at the end? very end, you see her burying him or visiting his burial site. But considering that plot point has such an impact on some of the decision, the that the crew makes it's odd that it's based on a relationship we never see it's based on how she feels about another character we never meet i don't it, think do they even name it yeah he is named oh wait it's yeah not, that's right. i forget the name it's I, matt damon's dr man i know that and there's there's two other names like one of them's edmonds or edmondson or something i don't know that's yeah that's right but um it's just I, I thought you made the good point you said to me when we were discussing this online you said why couldn't they have reworked the script so that Matt Damon's character was Anne Hathaway's boyfriend, right? Which, and again, if you're if for some reason you're listening to this and haven't seen the movie, you might be surprised Matt Damon is in it. But he is. They didn't promote it. It's kind of a big secret role. It's not a cameo for some reason. I don't I, like. I, what was the point of? of I don't know. That? I guess it's just 
I mean, maybe it's contractual and stuff, or maybe it's just Chris Nolan's belief in the power of cinema and the gasps in the audience when Matt Damon <laughs> arises from cryo sleep. But uh, it's not a cameo. He's in it for a good solid no, half he's, hour. Well he's, well, he's like a huge part of... 40 minutes? Of, yeah, like a huge part of the movie going forward. Um, I, mean, I like his section of the movie. Basically, Matt Damon turns into the villain of the film for about a 40-minute stretch. And at, at that point, the the film picks up some urgency and becomes about something. Um, well, and it, it's about it, it becomes about clashing ideas, right? And what what you, you know? would sacrifice to ensure the human race lives on? Would you sacrifice? Would right. you sacrifice your family? Would you give up everything you ever had to ensure that that uh, people that you'll never know will live? And that's interesting. And it is interesting for a little while, and then it ends. And it literally blows up in her face. Yes. And then the movie becomes about love conquering all, including all dimensions of space and time. Love being, love, love being the fifth and dimension. And I know that sounds like I'm being sarcastic, but am I, Stu? No. No. <laughs> no I'm really, really, really not. not. <sighs> it's like, way to crib something from the fifth element, man. <laughs> fifth element. I hadn't even thought of that. This movie tries to do it all. It tries to be a hard science fiction film that deals in real physics and real ideas that astrophysicists work on every day. Right. Well, and you know, prop, props where it's due. I mean, we don't we don't get hard science fiction I, like this that's, nearly often that's enough. That's true. Um, I mean, props for just the pro-science movie. I mean, there were two big pro-science movies that opened this weekend, Interstellar and Big Hero 6. I liked Big Hero... And both featured wormholes. Yeah, and I like Big Hero 6 a lot more than I like Interstellar. But, yes, but good on there being two big pro-science movies in theaters this weekend. I hope a lot of kids go see them. Or at least Big Hero 6. Now, kids would be bored to tears by this. Good yeah, grief. But um, anyway, the movie tries to be the hard science fiction movie. It tries to be this... Uh, sort of character study and this emotional story about uh, fathers and daughters and parents and their kids. But I mean, nobody really has an arc though. That's, that's part of the frustrating thing is like Cooper is the exact same person that he was at the, at the end of the movie that he was at the beginning. Like there's just, there is no progression. I am. I mean, the last 10 minutes of this movie are so bad. It, it just, it's unbelievable to me. First of all, the big emotional underpinning to the film, or what's supposed to be, is him returning to see his daughter, his daughter Murph, who who, who grows into Jessica Chastain and then eventually grows into Ellen Burstyn. So in the last ten minutes of this movie, after three hours, uh, Cooper is finally reunited with his daughter, his daughter he promised he would return to, and she's you know old and has had a full life since then and has grandkids and whatnot and they literally spend like 30 seconds in a room together and then she shoes him out yeah, it's like <laughs> again it sounds like i'm being go go fly to go fly to Anne Hathaway. doesn't it sound like i'm lying no it, it does sound like you're it sounds like you're making a gross exaggeration and i'm not for you know comedic hyperbolic purposes but no it's it's like 90 seconds the entire emotional linchpin of this movie it, it's finally put on screen and then brushed away in like a minute and then he sent off to rendezvous with Anne Hathaway's character uh, Amelia Brand is her name 
And the movie kind of, I said it hints that they're going to have a romantic relationship or that they're somehow destined to be together romantically now. You think it's not just hinting. You think it's flat out text. I think it, that, I think it, it, it feels pretty explicit, which, you know, I mean, she, she tells Murph tells him to fly out there and, you know, go reunite with her. Even though I during mean, the course of this movie, these two barely feel like friends, let alone have a romantic interest in each other. The only time that there's any sort of inkling that there might somehow, someday, some way go something romantic is when Cooper asks Tars if uh, Hathaway and Wes Bentley are together. And that's it. See, it's it's one that's so brief. And two, I didn't take that as hinting at that he was interested in her. I took that as setting up the drama that would come later when they had to decide whose planet to go visit and she wanted to go visit her boyfriend's planet. I thought it was a setup for that. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, but like I said, I'm, getting, I'm that, seriously getting more pissed off about this movie just talking with you about it. Because now I'm, uh, now I, I'm I, thinking of things I, I didn't even think about when I wrote my print review and when, when we've talked about it over the last day. I, I genuinely dislike it. Like, how much time these people spend on that spaceship, shouldn't we have learned about just uh, – shouldn't a huge focus have been on their relationship together, whether they became – you know how, friend, how well, friendly they got, how they passed the time, how their relationships – changed and deepened and grew over the years they were on the spaceship but none of that ever happens the only time these people talk is either like tech science stuff or debates about what the mission's going to be you never get any sense of their life on this ship at all well and you know like i don't necessarily have a problem with the lack of that kind of material if it weren't for that ending, if it weren't for the ending where he's supposed to go make this reunion with her and like carry on the human race outside the confines of the Milky Way uh, galaxy, then I wouldn't care because, I mean, the focus is on so much more than just, you know, the personal interplay. That's fine if that's not the focus of your movie. And it's not the focus of the movie for, for the majority of the runtime. And they're all fine. I mean, the acting's fine. No one. I mean, it's not bad performances. No one really stands uh, out. No one's like going to blow your McConaughey's mind. McConaughey's good. McConaughey gets gets props because he commits. He's to He's not this. true detective good. He's not but, true detective good. But nothing that I don't think there's anything that he's ever done that's been true detective good. Might be right. Um, but like, but I mean, you know, he he commits to this idea. He invests himself emotionally in whatever he can. You know, so I I think he's the one that that certainly comes out the best out of all of this, uh, save for maybe Bill Irwin as Tars. I would watch an entire movie about Tars. Tars was kind of neat. Tars is their robot that they have with him. He kind of looks like the monolith from two thousand one, which is probably intentional, maybe intentional. I you know what you know what I liked you know what I thought was a nifty bit of de- uh, design work was when they were on the ice planet and they have to, Tars has to move in a, a hurry and all his little appendages sort of split apart to where he looks like right. an asterisk and he's able to roll right. he basically turns himself into a ball I thought no that was on the that was the oh, water, it was the water I'm sorry it was the water planet not yeah. the ice. it was the other really boring planet we visit in this the other movie. really generic planet. yes. <laughs> but I thought, oh, wow, that's cool. Tars can turn into almost a ball and roll. And again, it, it takes 10 seconds and he never does anything that cool again for the rest of the movie. Um, I well, did like does... I did marginally like Tars and whatever humor there is in the movie, which is not much. It does come from him, it, it, you know, with which... his settings as far as, 
what settings does he have? It's like he has like uh, sarcasm. He's got truth. He's got sarcasm. He's got truth. He's got. And McC- uh, McConaughey's always adjusting the percentage of how, right. how sarcastic and how honest the robot could be, which is. Which that's some, that's cute. some delicious that's some delicious irony that uh, you know that the the funniest most personality laden character in this movie is a robot. Yeah, certainly more so than Hathaway. Right. <laughs> so yeah, the ending's very upsetting. The whole movie's upsetting. It's uh, what else do we want to complain about, Stu? I want to complain that Spielberg never got to make this because Spielberg would have crushed it would this have been so much better. Like. I think at the end, at the end of it, you know, part of what really ruins this for me is that none of the emotional beats connect. Like none of them really resonate for me at least. And part of that's because Nolan is just such a cold filmmaker. He doesn't, you know, nothing that, the only movie that he's ever done that really had an emotion that felt like it had a a, a deep emotional center was Memento. But, you know, everything else that he's done just it just never connects emotionally. And I don't like, I'm honestly starting to wonder if he really has it in him to pull off. Uh, scenes I like that. honestly, scenes. I agree with you a thousand percent. And I don't think he does like take inception, for example, which I like a lot. I think Inception's a great movie, but the Agreed. emotional, the one part of that movie that doesn't work for me at all is the emotional hook between Leonardo DiCaprio and what's it pronounce her name for me, Stu. Cotillard, Marin Cotillard. Correct. That that the, the relationship between those two and the loss there is supposed to be the emotional hook to that movie, and it just feels so flat for me. Yep. And I, I just don't think he can do it. I mean that that you know, and and we're kind of talking about um, a romantic relationship, man woman stuff, but I just don't think he's good at any sort of you know. Uh, he makes puzzle boxes. Christopher Nolan makes really good plot-driven, twist-driven puzzle box movies. And he's done it a bunch of times. Most of them are great. That's what he's good at. The minute he starts trying to tell a sweeping emotional story about romantic relationships, familial relationships, it falls apart. I don't think he can do it. No, I don't. I don't think he can. And like, I mean, all the like all the father-daughter stuff, even the father-father daughter stuff spanning galaxies like i just like all i could think of was man spielberg would have made a hell of a movie with this material right and i don't you know i we're not we talk about movies we're not filmmakers i wish i could break it down better here's here's why here's why he it doesn't work in his films here's here's why spielberg can do it and he can't but but in some ways it's just something intangible you know it's just it's something you can't put a finger on exactly except to say when you're watching a spielberg movie and spielberg's firing on all cylinders which he is 80 percent of the time you can feel the bonds between those people between those characters even in something i mean take a popcorn movie like indiana jones and the last crusade the the relationship between indy and his dad is so strong well, like the the moment, you know, sp- referring specifically to that, like the part toward the end of Last Crusade where it looks like Indy's falling over the side of the cliff on the tank. Yes. You know, and then Connery's, I thought I lost your uh, boy. So you know, he, fantastic. He, yeah, it's like you you believe that. You believe in that moment that 
the you best know, uh, the, the best thing is about that scene is right the emotion on Connery's face and the I thought I lost you boy and then he you see him quickly compose himself and kind of slaps him up and it's like okay on on right. with the quest now and, right onward and, and Indy you know. even like sort of slumps back down and it's like and then the hat yeah I mean back such up. a great awesome. scene and it's just Nolan it's like he wants to have that kind of a relationship in his movie but. They can't. Well, he thinks he thinks that simply by presenting this sort of contrast in personalities and setting up just that initial conflict, uh, that that'll be enough. But it just it doesn't work. No. All right, Stu, I'm going to put you on the spot. I want you to rank Christopher Nolan's filmography from best to worst. From best to worst. Do you, want, do you want? Do you need a reminder? You want, you want to open a web page? You want me to give you a? No, uh, no, 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 no. Uh, I don't. I don't think I need that. Um, okay. You know what? I think I. I have to go with. We're going best to worst, right? Yeah, we'll right? start with. We'll start with number one. The best. Okay. Uh, number number one is absolutely Memento. That is a movie that has aged superbly well. It just the editing, the craftsmanship. Um, you know, just the the way that the puzzle aspect of it serves the narrative, serves the themes, serves the characters. That is a movie that would not work presented in a different way. And to be clear, Nolan, I mean, obviously there are great characters in Nolan's films, but it's not because of any relationship they have or any emotional journey they go on. It's more because they're very sort of driven, uh, sometimes solo or lonely people, well, and you know, I think that's one of the reasons why I love Memento so much is that it's such a sad yeah, movie. Memento's a good example of that. You know, because it, it's it's a movie about the ways that we lie to ourselves. It's a, a movie about the ways that that we remember things and refuse to remember things and choose to forget things. You know, and Leonard is, is you know, you just you feel you're kind of horrified by what he does, but you also feel really sad for him just because of you know the everything that he's doing you know to cope okay i have memento at number two and i think it's a masterpiece so i I won't dispute any of this um so yeah memento memento at number one uh inception at number two i haven't i haven't revisited that one in a while but i saw it three times in the theater when it came out just a stunningly well well well-crafted movie probably some of the best editing uh i've ever seen in a movie okay Given how how easily they they jump between layers in that movie, and it's always crystal clear, you know what's going on where and who's doing what. I mean that that's just a stunning okay. achievement. Um, great movie, uh, Dark Knight for number three. Mm-hmm. I love it. I don't love it as much as most people seem to love it in terms of Batman movies, but it's you know it's it's definitely you know. It's so does that mean there. you don't think Dark Knight is the best Batman movie? Okay, I think it's in terms of overall craftsmanship, it's it's the movie. I have a preference for the first Tim Burton Batman movie. Okay, that's the the, Bur- the first Burton Batman is the one that I revisit the most. Um, then uh, let's see, some of these I haven't seen in a while. Like I haven't seen Insomnia right since the theater. I haven't seen. I don't think I've seen The Prestige since the theater, but I'd still. Yeah, I'd probably I'd probably go with the Prestige next, okay. if for no other reason than Bowie, yeah, uh, being Tesla because that's just awesome. Bowie makes everything uh, so better. The, uh, the Prestige, Batman Begins, 
than probably following. Yeah. Uh, following's fine. I mean, it's great for like you know a first feature, for an experiment for a director that's still trying to kind of figure out what it is that he can Agreed. do. Um, then I would put I. God, this is this 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 should tell you how much I I dislike Interstellar. The Dark Knight Rises is better than it Interstellar, is. and I, it is. Like it's at least a Batman. Movie. The Dark Knight Rises <laughs> is dumb fun. I and Interstellar really is smart. One. <laughs> not fun. It's just it's <laughs> boring. It is so smart boring. Bore. Would you rather watch Dumb Fun or Smart Bore? Uh, I would rather watch then Dumb the Dark Fun. Dark Knight Rises wins. I can at least laugh at Tom Hardy being Bane. And then and then you have Interstellar last. I mostly agree with that. Uh, my list is a little different, but I I can't really disagree with too much of what you said. I have The Dark Knight at number one. I still think it's the best Batman movie and one of the best superhero films ever made i have memento at two it's an absolute masterpiece batman begins at three then inception the prestige insomnia the dark knight rises at seven following at eight and interstellar at nine or last following i'd actually never seen until friday this past friday uh yeah it's been in my netflix i've had it bookmarked at netflix forever and I, mm-hmm. was lo- I was looking for a movie to watch Friday, and I'm like, well, this seems to be the appropriate weekend to do that. Watched right. Following for the first time, and I agree with you entirely. It's I don't think it's a it's I don't fine. I don't think it's a very good movie. I think the acting's very amateurish. I don't think for all the the narrative twists and turns in it, I don't think the story pays it off really well. It's not that it's not no. that interesting of a story being told. But what is interesting is seeing themes and styles that Nolan would clearly. Right. It's an experiment. It it shows off a lot of things that Nolan clearly was interested in and was going to be continue to be interested in throughout his career. It's told out of sequence, out of chronological sequence. Um, It's a dry run for Memento because Memento is what he followed it it up with. It feels a lot like Memento and then to a bit of a lesser extent the prestige. But it's that kind of sort of keep you guessing. Right structure the movie however you have to to pull the rug out from under you as many times as possible and and from that standpoint it's an interesting 70 minutes it's only 70 minutes long yeah but, i mean it's it's fine but i wouldn't it is i wouldn't it call is. it good and i would still take the dumb fun over the dark knight rises slightly slightly over it i mean i think the top six and i think we basically had the same top six dark knight memento batman begins inception the prestige and insomnia no matter what I mean, order you want to put those in, those are good movies. That's, that, that's still a hell of a movie. Those are man. six really good to great movies that you should watch. And that's where this, you know, this is where the Nolan Defense Force comes from that we talked about at the beginning of the show. <laughs> and it's, you get why it's there. And I'm certainly. You made Batman serious. Listen, I, 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 the guy's basically made, I don't know if I want to call, do we want to call The Dark Knight Rises a bad movie? I, I know it's not yes. a good one. But no, it's a bad movie. It's like a six out of ten. It's like a three star I, out of five I, affair. I, I would firmly, yeah, it, it is firmly a bad All movie. All right, if I think it's I think it's a not good movie, but for the sake of this argument, we'll go with bad. But uh, he's really, I mean, if we if we say follow if if we say that following was practice, pretty much a student film, which is basically what it was, or what it felt like anyway. He's only made two bad movies: Dark Knight Rises and Interstellar. Now they were his last two. So should we be concerned about that? I don't know. It depends on what he follows this up with. I think he needs to go back and do something smaller. I think he needs to do 
you know, another memento or another insomnia, uh, you know, something small character focused, uh, that kind of a thing. Yeah. I think if, I I think if we, I think if we can go back and do that again, he'll get back on the right track. That's usually the good advice for anybody that just made a three hour gajillion dollar film that kind of sucks. Right. Go back, make something that costs less than 80 million and make it small. Uh, I'm not soured on Nolan yet. Oh, no. Um, No, I am. I mean, like like we've said, Memento buys him so much credit still. That and The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight and Memento are so good that you get to make some stinkers. But Interstellar is definitely a stinker. Yeah. All right, Stu, I think that's going to count for a minicast. Do you have any other last shots you want to take at Interstellar before we call it an episode? (laughs) I think we, we uh, might get nasty emails about this one. I'm sh- I'm sure we'll get we'll get some kind of nasty comments. I'm going to be accused uh, of... strongly dissenting comments on you know where will we post this from people that we know. Yeah, for sure. But hey, we we you know we we agree, so it must be right. If you and I agree, we must be correct. Oh, absolutely. That's my theory. Everyone listening to this is thinking these guys are wrong. We're not because Stu and I rarely agree. Come at us, bro. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Stu. It was great having you on again tonight. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Pleasure as always. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm going to repeat again. If you enjoyed listening to this, please go to iTunes and say some nice things about us and like us on Twitter and Facebook and all that. My name is Bob. This is the Cult Spark Podcast, and we are going to see you guys in a couple weeks. Thanks. Thanks.